2006, March 6th, first lecture of Unit 6, The Great Ocean of Truth on the Frontiers of Astrophysics will begin today with Lecture 40, The Once and Future Sun. Going here, we're beginning the final unit of this course. This is the final week of our class. It's been a wonderful nine weeks. We've got one more to go, however. And I've entitled this section, The Great Ocean of Truth. It's derived from a, a quote by Isaac Newton, which, he, uh, which we'll vi revisit later in the week, which was his description for what the world is like beyond what we know. And so I've chosen it as, a, as appropriate because today's, today and all the subsequent lectures are going to be kind of out on the frontiers of astrophysics. These are places where we, we really aren't sure where the answers are going to be yet, but we can see some of the outlines in some of the crazier places here. So I've chosen four lectures for the core of this week. We're going to revisit a lot of material from the previous weeks, and this is all going to be on the exams, of course, um, which are going to look at sort of more speculative, more reaching out there ideas, because now we have the base to, to work from. Today's lecture is entitled The Once and Future Sun, which is going to be asking what the future of our own sun is like using detailed solar models. It's a description of some very interesting recent work on where the sun is going to be headed in its own evolution. A bit more personal view of solar evolution, if you will. We're going to follow that with a lecture tomorrow on dark matter and dark energy. This is an area that's brand new in many ways, which is looking at what the stuff of the universe is. In fact, is not the stuff you see around you immediately in this room. It may be made of something else completely, and we'll look at that. That kind of touches a bit more on galaxies and cosmology. Then we're going to start really heading out in, you know, off the road and into the weeds. On um, Wednesday, the topic of the lecture will be... Um, which one did I pick? Oh, yes, time travel, which sounds like science fiction, but I hope to convince you, in fact, is not. Well, exactly, sort of, kind of. Um, it actually does sort of bear upon uh, the ideas that we've been talking about, in particular, some of the wilder corners of general theory of relativity. On Thursday, I want to bring up what is considered, I think, primarily the perennial topic of interest. Whenever people hear I'm an astronomer, I get asked two main questions. One, what do I think about black holes? Two, do I think there is life on other worlds? And so on Thursday, we are going to pick up the question of, is there life on other worlds? And look at it from a standpoint of astronomy. In other words, look at it as a scientific question, not as a science fiction question, per se. And on Friday will be sort of a course summary where I try to bring together a lot of the ideas into sort of one lecture, which will highlight some of the nice graphics we've been seeing all through the quarter. So we'll begin today's lecture here in just a moment. One of the interesting, I also want to thank all of you who filled out the, the podcast survey for me on Friday. Uh, the podcasts have been actually kind of fun. I've been getting a lot of email from people outside of our class, as I've mentioned before. We've got people like uh, a, a, a journalist in, tr in uh, he's in Tromso? Trondheim, Trondheim, Norway, which is, I think, wins our furthest north prize. It's actually further north than the northern edge of, of uh, what, the Hudson's Bay. So it's up there in Norway. It's a journalist who listens to us on his morning commute. And I have a retired air traffic controller in Ottawa who's been following our class. And, of course, as it turns out, the interesting surprise is this class is absolutely huge in Australia. I get all kinds of email in Australia all the way from Aussie Pete and his mates down in Melbourne who listen to our lectures to a guy named Mark who listens to us in Darwin, Australia while he commutes to his job in Humpty Doo. You've got to really think something about a country that has place names like Humpty Doo. Australia must be great. I've got to go there one of these days. Anyway, so we welcome them all, of course, to the podcast. They get the last week of them as well. And today we're going to pick up a topic, the once and future sun. 
What is the evolution of our sun from the present day forward? And how do we know that I can actually tell that story with any kind of, uh, any kind of confidence? So the key ideas for today is we're going to explore the idea of solar evolution. Where is our sun going in the future? The sun right now is a middle-aged, low-mass main sequence star, and we can project its evolution forward because we know a great deal about it. We know its metal content. We actually know a great deal about the sun's interior from something called helioseismology. In fact, our model and our, for the interior of the sun and advanced state-of-the-art computer codes have allowed us to project us forward very well, and that's what today's story is going to be based upon. What we're going to see is the sun goes through a series of main phases. It starts out as a main sequence star. It will evolve into a red giant, then a horizontal branch star, then an asymptotic giant branch star where unstable pulsations will impose. I see I've dropped it off the key ideas. It will go through a brief planetary nebula phase, and then finally on to ending its lifetime as a white dwarf at an age of a little over 12 billion years from its start. So we want to look at what that evolution is going to be today and the implications, of course, for various of the planets in the solar system, including our own. So today's lecture is the once and future sun. So we're going to address a single question today. How will the sun evolve? To answer this question, we can actually do it. We can actually answer it without having to get into a time machine and run forward by having three pieces. The first piece is going to be state-of-the-art stellar evolution codes. These are computer programs, which nowadays, quite remarkably, I could have running on the background in my little laptop here. That's how powerful computers have become. And it tells you something about how straightforward stellar physics really is. It's actually quite straightforward to write a program which will include all of the relevant physics for the sun. Energy generation, energy transport, gravity, pressure, hydrostatic equilibrium, mixing and matching of the various elements, the layers that are in radiative and convective transport, all of that stuff can be done with tremendous accuracy. Furthermore, those models aren't simply guesswork because we can, in fact, see inside the sun. We can see the neutrinos that come out of the sun, which tell us the current rate of nuclear energy generation. And we can also probe the interior of the sun using the ringing of the sun called helioseismology. It's like looking at the inside of the Earth using earthquakes. The sun actually rings and oscillates. In the last 10 years or so, a tremendous amount of data has been gathered on the state of the, of the interior, giving us a detailed solar structure model. Professor Mark Pinsonow in our department is one of the world's experts on the interior of the sun. He has a marvelous plot outside of his door that plots the best state-of-the-art stellar structure model against the very best interior data from helioseismology. The difference between them is measured in fractions of a percent for astronomy that's an absolutely unprecedented precision. The third piece we need is we need to include realistic mass loss processes in stars. We know that stars actually do not keep their mass entirely through their lifetime. They actually can have winds that blow off and remove parts of their outer envelopes over their history. This of the three is the hardest part of this problem because, in fact, it's the one place where physics gets introduced to a little bit of probability here. There are stochastic processes, kind of like weather, that come into play that aren't exactly predictable. We know the basic physics behind them, but whether you have a strong wind or a light wind, whether you have one inch of slushy snow or what we had outside, is difficult to predict. We understand how they all work, but the prediction of that kind of weather is difficult. And so in many ways, mass loss sort of straddles the fence between predictable deterministic physics and stellar weather. And so it's the hardest and most speculative part of this, and is the principal source of the uncertainty in the story that I'm going to tell. 
But fundamentally, what we've been able to do over the last decade or so is actually develop a self-consistent model of the interior and evolution of the sun, sufficiently good that we have confidence to now trace that evolution forward in our computers over the next five, six, seven billion years to trace out what is the future of the sun going to look like. It's informed by other observations of stars like our sun, by the interior physics, by all those pieces we've already seen. So let's now take the, gather those pieces together and apply it to ourselves. The sun today is a middle-aged main sequence star of one solar mass. It's about 4.55 billion years old, has a mass of about 1.99 times 10 to the 30 kilograms, a radius of 700,000 kilometers, and a total luminosity, called a solar luminosity, of 3.83 times 10 to the 26 watts. Those are all the basic numbers. It has a photosphere, the outer visible surface, the point at which the sun becomes opaque to the outside. The effective temperature of that surface has a temperature of 5,779 degrees Kelvin. We really do know it to that kind of precision in round numbers. This tells me that what I'm dealing with is a G2 main sequence star, a G2 dwarf. So if I looked at it and placed it on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, it would be just hovering just a little bit above the main sequence because it's about halfway through its hydrogen burning stage. It's burned about 50% of its core hydrogen. So now if you were to actually dive into the sun and look in the central core where nuclear fusion is occurring, you would find it is approximately half helium and half hydrogen at the present day. Even though it would have started out, actually it's probably a little bit more helium because it started out with a mix to start with, but half of the core hydrogen has been exhausted and converted into helium. It is currently in a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. It is capable of transporting the energy generated from the core up to the surface at exactly the rate needed to radiate away the one solar luminosity of light. And it is in hydrostatic equilibrium in the sense that at any given instant, pressure and gravity are in balance throughout its interior. It is, in fact, a classic middle-aged main sequence star in this regard. So everything we know about the sun today is really sort of right down the line of what we'd expect for any other four and a half billion year old one solar mass star with a rich combining of metals. Now the sun probably took about 50 million years to go through its formation process and alighted on the main sequence approximately four and a half billion years ago. When it landed on the main sequence, it was a different star than we see today, but only a little bit. It was about 70% fainter. It was about 0.7 solar luminosities. It was also a little bit smaller, about 0.897 solar radii, and a little bit cooler, about 5,586 Kelvin, rather than the 5,800 Kelvin in round numbers we see today. As the sun has continued to burn hydrogen into helium, as the helium begins to pile up inside the nucleus of the core of the star, What's going to happen is the sun has to slightly rearrange its configuration. It has to regain hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. And in so doing, as it evolves, it's going to grow slightly hotter and slightly brighter over time until it reaches the state that we see today. So if we were to go back in a time machine, back to the primordial Earth, just after the Earth solidified, and we could stand on its surface and look up at the sun, we would see the sun as a slightly cooler star. It actually would probably be a G2 or a G4 star rather than a G2 star. It would actually have a slightly smaller radius and a slightly fainter brightness. But over time, if I watched the movie forward, I would see the sun slowly grow a bit in size, slowly get brighter, and slowly get a little bit hotter. All of those are external responses to the change in interior configuration as I replace more and more of the hydrogen in the core with the helium produced by nuclear fusion.
And this is what's going to occur, even though at any instant it's in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, there's a slow evolution, a slow brightening, but nothing compared to what awaits it. So if I look down on the solar system in the present day, what I would see is the sun. Now this is all drawn to scales. All the pictures you see like this are to scale. The sun is in there, barely filling a couple of pixels, and I've drawn the inner four planets, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Mars. This is the state of the solar system four and a half billion years from, from the point, point of formation of the sun. If I look up at the sun from the perspective of the Earth, what I see is the Earth is a warm, green, moist place. It's got a very lightweight nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere. Most of the carbon dioxide is locked away in ocean sediments, and most of the water is in the form of the oceans. I see a very beautiful, bright, almost sort of yellowish sun, and this, in fact, would be the view that we have from the Earth today. But it isn't the view that's going to last forever. The Earth is going to suffer from a wee bit of a midlife crisis. It turns out the Sun is not going to be such a hospitable star for us in a not very distant future. Now, this is going to somewhat personalize the dire future stuff that we talked about last, Friday, last Thursday. But I want to point out that the 1.1 billion years from now is an awful long time. Bear in mind that we believe that sort of genetically recognizable Homo sapiens have probably only been around for one or two hundred thousand years. No species on the Earth, not even the cockroach, has been around for a billion years. So it's not even clear what form humanity will take 1.1 billion years in the future. So it's not exactly something to go worrying about the real estate prices on. But it is something we can transmit forward. As the sun begins to age, more and more of the hydrogen is replaced by helium in the core, the sun will actually grow a little bit larger, a little bit brighter, and a little bit hotter in response. As a consequence, in about 1.1 billion years, the sun will be 10% brighter than it is today. One solar luminosity will be 1.1 present-day solar luminosities. I'm going to be using a little bit of backwards units here. Whenever I talk about L sun or R sun, I'm referring to the present-day sun. So that's going to be my point of comparison. This extra sunlight is going to, of course, impinge upon the Earth, and what's going to happen is it's going to trigger a greenhouse effect. There's already a greenhouse effect keeping the Earth about 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it would be if it had no atmosphere. But if I add up to the solar luminosity by 10%, quite irrespective of whatever human beings may try to do to their atmosphere with, with fossil fuels, we'll run out of oil a long time before 1.1 billion years, that extra sunlight is going to cause water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere to begin to slowly boil out. The atmosphere will basically dry out. What happens is the water vapor stays in water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere as the atmosphere warms. It goes to the top of the atmosphere where it's hit by ultraviolet radiation broken into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen being lighter and having an escape speed larger than the escape velocity of the Earth boils off into space and the oxygen forms with other molecules to form oxides. And so we slowly but surely remove the water vapor from the Earth's atmosphere. Now this state of affairs will mean the atmosphere will get very dry and the oceans are going to start drying up. Small land bodies of water will probably begin to dry up as well in the greater heat. As a consequence of the greater surface temperature, very large land animals will probably not be possible, just in the same way that you don't find large land animals in the Earth's deserts today.
If you travel to the interior of Australia, to the Atacama Desert, or to the Namibian deserts, you don't find elephants, and you don't find very many people except some real tough ones hanging on by their fingernails. Very likely, however, life would survive deep in the oceans and in underground areas, but so large life is probably going to be precluded by the conditions of the solar system a billion years hence. We would, if we were still around as anything recognizable in a billion years, we probably would have gone somewhere else, hopefully. As the sun ages, it's still burning hydrogen to helium. It's still in thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. But now when the sun is 9 billion years old, about 3.5 billion years from today, the sun is going to be 40% brighter. When the sun gets 40% brighter, the amount of incident sunlight on the Earth is equivalent to the incident sunlight at the orbit of Venus now. As a consequence, the moist greenhouse that dries out that atmosphere is now going to begin to boil the oceans off, and we're actually going to get a runaway greenhouse effect. All of that carbon dioxide that has been locked up inside of deep ocean sediments is going to come boiling out, and our atmosphere is going to get hotter and heavier and absolutely bone dry. So as a consequence, we're going to recapitulate here on the Earth the very conditions we see on the planet Venus today. We're going to have an atmosphere which probably has 90 atmospheres of pressure, 90 current day atmospheres of pressure. It'll be mostly carbon dioxide because we will have released the carbon dioxide gas locked in marine sediments into the air. The water vapor will dry out in the moist greenhouse portion. And we're going to end up with a very, very hot, heavy, bone dry carbon dioxide atmosphere. So if you wanted a picture of the Earth as it would appear three and a half billion years in the future, the answer is, Look to our neighbors, look to the planet Venus. This is probably what the Earth will look like in three and a half billion years. The Sun is still a main sequence star, but the orbit of the Earth, one astronomical unit away, is no longer a hospitable place. It will have conditions very similar to where the orbit of Venus is now, at about 0.7 AU, and the Earth will in fact resemble the planet Venus. Well, this is what happens to the Earth. The Sun is sort of getting slowly and steadily brighter and hotter as it begins to exhaust the hydrogen in its core. Eventually, that core hydrogen is going to run out. If we use the present day measurements for the sun, we project that the core hydrogen exhaustion is going to occur when the sun is about 11 billion years old, or about 5.5 billion years from now. So the sun really is just about in middle age. It's just about halfway through its main sequence lifetime. When the sun runs out of core hydrogen, we will see occurring in the sun exactly those events which occur in other low-mass main sequence stars. It's built up and replaced all of the hydrogen in its core with helium. It's too cool for helium to, to undergo fusion, so helium sits there as an ash and it simply builds up, adding weight but not adding energy. And so as a consequence, the gravity of the core it starts growing stronger and stronger, but there's not enough heat input from fusion to give it the pressure to hold it in hydrostatic equilibrium. When the inert helium core gets big enough, hydrostatic equilibrium is broken. The sun no longer can maintain pressure and gravity balance in its interior. The helium core will begin to contract. As it contracts, it will begin to heat up. This will cause the hydrogen burning zones to be shouldered out into a shell surrounding the contracting hydrogen core. The extra heat of contraction will drive fusion even faster out of thermal equilibrium. So at this point, the sun will not only lose hydrostatic, but thermal equilibrium as well. And it will find itself making more energy than it can suitably transport to the surface to shine away as light. As a consequence, that extra energy has got to do something. And what that extra energy does is it begins causing the sun to swell up and grow. It inflates the sun like blowing into a balloon.
At this point, the temperature of the sun will have risen to 5,500 degrees Kelvin. It's a little bit cooler now than what it was. It's actually starting to turn around. The radius is up about 1.6 times the current solar radius, and now it's 2.2 times brighter than it is today. So the sun begins its journey off of the main sequence. It no longer burns hydrogen to helium in its core, and it can no longer stay on the main sequence. It now becomes what's called a subgiant star. It isn't yet a giant, but it's on its way to becoming a giant. So in 5.5 billion years, hydrogen core exhaustion will mean the beginning of some drastic changes in the structure of the sun, and its evolution will begin to speed up a little bit, because now it can no longer rely on the low, slow burn that it gets from hydrogen, because hydrogen is so efficient as a fusion fuel. Everything else it taps from here on out is a combination of gravitational collapse or helium fusion, all of which are very inefficient and work on very short time scales. So here's the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Remember that? Luminosity is a function of temperature, hot on the left, cool on the right, faint on the bottom, up to very, very bright at the top. This yellow line here represents the zero-age main sequence or thereabout for nearby stars. The sun alights pretty near the main sequence at hydrogen ignition. It's a slightly more metal-rich star than some of the stars around us, so it actually lands a little bit above the main, sequ the main sequence for nearby stars. Today, it's in this position. It's grown a little bit brighter and a little bit hotter as a consequence at one solar luminosity in 5700. It will continue to grow brighter, but actually at some point, just before it runs out of hydrogen, it will actually turn around and actually reach a maximum temperature. That maximum temperature is going to occur about the time the Earth becomes like Venus. And then it will begin suddenly getting cooler and a whole lot brighter and will begin swelling up in size. Now, I'll give you a, a, this picture, like I've said before in the class. The Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is a roadmap for stellar evolution. This is going to be the roadmap for the sun. I'm going to be plotting the data from the stellar models of where the sun will land on the HR diagram. And the size of the little circle that I draw is going to be the right size relative to one sun. That's what I've placed a, a sun-sized star today. So you see the relative sizes. And its color is going to represent the color it would appear in our sky, in, as well as I can do with PowerPoint. So it's as, as good a map as I can get. Well, the next bit of evolution takes about 700 million years, about 0.7 giga years. The sun is going to have a lively old age, as all of a sudden it's going to go through some really big changes as that helium core continues to contract and more and more of its energy gets shoved into that hydrogen burning shell. It starts out and is going to expand. It's actually not going to get brighter through this phase. It's actually going to move across the HR diagram at roughly constant luminosity, about 2.2 times brighter than it is today. But it's going to swell up in size from about 1.6 to 2.3 times its current size. As a consequence, because the temperature is the same, but the radius is bigger, remember that luminosity goes like radius squared times temperature to the fourth power. Since the luminosity is staying constant and the radius is getting bigger, in order for the luminosity to be constant, the temperature has got to drop. And the temperature is going to drop rather dramatically from about 5,500 Kelvin down to about 4,900 degrees Kelvin. Now at this point, the outer envelope of the sun is going to be a little puffy. It's going to get a little light. It's going to start wafting off a little bit. You're going to see the first beginnings of an episode of mass loss as the sun begins to approach the base of the red, of the red giant branch. The sun is losing mass today. We call it the solar wind. It's extremely low. It's losing like a 10 millionth or a 100 millionth of its mass per year. 
terribly tiny thing. Actually, it's much lower than that. I should use those numbers better because it would run out in a few million years, wouldn't it? It's losing a tiny, tiny amount of, of matter just from the boil-off and evaporation of its outer atmosphere. That boil-off is going to start to build up and pick up a little bit. It's still going to be kind of a light breeze, even though we call it the solar wind, compared to the winds that are waiting in its future. So if I was to look at the sun at an age of 12.15 billion years, just at the point where it reaches the base of the red giant branch, this is now again to scale. The sun would suddenly not appear as a small dot in the PowerPoint, but appear as a rather big, sort of, sort of pale yellow, pushing towards orange dot. And the inner four planets that I've drawn here, Jupiter's off the scale here, would be in pretty much the places they are today. They're not affected by the mass loss yet. At this point, the sun has been evolving at 2.2 times the luminosity of the sun. It's swelling in size and getting cooler. And then it's going to reach the base of the red giant branch. When it reaches the base of the red giant branch, all of a sudden, it goes from having this sort of radiative core and convective envelope. That convective envelope is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually, it reaches the point at the base of the giant branch where the convective envelope goes all the way to the core. When that happens, all of a sudden the rules change for how energy is transported out of the core and it begins a phase of extremely rapid growth. It begins to climb the red giant branch. So now the sun's going to start getting bright. It's going to take about 0.6 billion years, about 600 million years to make the climb from the base of the red giant branch to the tip of the red giant branch. In the process of doing this, the outer atmosphere is going to start getting very woofly and the wind is going to pick up, which by the time it reaches the tip of the red giant branch over those 600 million years, it's going to lose 28% of its envelope, actually 28% of its total mass from the outer portions of its envelope. Now, if you decrease the mass of the sun, you've decreased the amount of gravitational binding on the planets. And so the planets are actually going to move outwards in their orbit as they feel the slow mass loss. This is not an abrupt mass loss in the sense of an explosion. This is, a, this is going to happen very slowly over 600 million years. So the Earth will, will go through 600 million orbits during this time. That's a very slow process. And so the result is, as the mass loss proceeds, the Earth sees less sun inside of its orbit. It will move slowly outwards for every bit of mass lost. And so it's a very gradual effect. As a consequence, by the end of this period, Venus will have moved out to one astronomical unit. The Earth will have moved out to 1.4 astronomical units. In other words, as the sun climbs the red giant branch, Venus will take the place of the Earth. The Earth will take the place of Mars. Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and all the other planets, including Mercury, will proceed to work their way outwards. However, Mercury is not going to be quite so lucky. As it climbs the giant branch, it's, not going, to, it's going to grow tremendously in size, but not a lot in, in temperature. It's going to drop in temperature to about 3,100 degrees Kelvin. It will become an M0 giant star, M0 type 3. Its luminosity will be 2,350 times its current luminosity. Whatever atmosphere is left on the Earth is just going to be boiled straight off. Same is true of Venus, all the way out. In fact, Jupiter's going to find some of its atmosphere bladed. If you want to find a comfy place, get some real estate out in the Kuiper Belt and up by Pluto. That's probably going to be a nice spot out there. In fact, the water might be getting liquid out there instead of frozen. The sun will swell up until it's 166 times its current size. That's 0.775 astronomical units. 
and that's just going to swallow up the planet Mercury. So when the sun gets to the tip of the red giant branch, it's going to be one planet shy of its current complement. Mercury is just going to vanish into the envelope of the swelling red giant sun. So here's the picture of the, env- of the evolution on the main sequence. We get to the base of the giant branch. It's kind of an orange subgiant. And then it begins to grow very rapidly over the course of 600 million years, eventually becoming a red giant far bigger than its current size, very cool at about 3,100 degrees Kelvin. It's an M0 giant star in round numbers. Looked at from above, this is what our solar system will look like. The Mercury, well, bye-bye. It's history. It's literally toast. Venus just outside of the outside of the sun. The Earth here. Mars, they've all moved out, keeping just ahead of the swelling of the surface of the sun. They just get lucky. And then, of course, there's a tremendous stellar wind, so there'll be a gas breeze blowing through. So whatever little bits of atmosphere would be left on the Earth are going to get caught up and just blown away. This is what the it's going to look like. The solar system will look like when the sun is about 12.233 billion years. Now you'll notice all of a sudden I've picked up a lot of digits here. That's because the evolution is going to go so fast now that my time scale is going to be what's happening as these last few digits turn over. The 12 is going to stop changing because everything that happens from here on out is going to occur in less than a billion years, even though it took us 11 billion years to get to this point. And there's good reasons for that. If I was to stand upon the Earth, this is probably what the sky would look like. The sky would be filled with the red giant sun. And the moon, well, there isn't much of an eclipse left during the red giant phase. And what's left of the Earth is going to be bone dry and atmosphereless. When the sun reaches the top of the red giant branch, it's going to undercur a sudden change in its interior structure. Because when it reaches the top of the red giant branch, The temperature in the collapsing inert helium core reaches 100 million degrees Kelvin. When that happens, helium fusion can ignite. Helium fusion occurs by the triple alpha process. Hydrogen to hydrogen forms beryllium. Helium to helium plus helium forms beryllium. The beryllium sits around for a while, picks up a third helium, and begets the carbon. Carbon plus a helium, an additional reaction, gives you oxygen. And so you very quickly begin generating energy because the mass of a carbon or an oxygen nucleus is less than the constituent helium that go into it. So as a consequence, you get a little bit of energy out. That extra energy is sufficient to pump enough heat into the core that it stabilizes it against gravitational contraction. Hydrostatic equilibrium is regained. As hydrostatic equilibrium is regained, the sun now settles down. It actually makes less energy in its core, and enough less that the sun can now transport that newly found fusion energy out from the centers, out to the surface, and it settles back into thermal equilibrium as well. The hydrogen burning shell forms a very thin shell just outside the helium burning layer, adding its little mite of power. And so it doesn't actually return to its original place on the main sequence because it's got a little extra energy that it didn't have before and it settles down quickly onto the horizontal branch. The time it takes to go from the top of the red giant branch down to the horizontal branch is very rapid. The rearrangement, once you ignite helium burning, occurs in a million years. Now previously, it took us nearly 1.3 billion years to go from hydrogen core exhaustion to the tip of the red giant branch. Now all of a sudden I go zip right down to the, the, the horizontal branch in one million years. That's a cosmic blink of the eye. 
in, in, in these kinds of timescales. Where we used to talk about things now occurring on billions of years, it will proceed now on millions and even faster. So on the HR diagram, helium flash occurs, helium fusion into carbon and oxygen, the sun suddenly regains thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium, but it's going to reachieve that equilibrium in a different place than where it had it before. It can, it's going to be making a little extra energy, so it's going to be much more luminous, and that extra luminosity is going to keep it puffed up, and that puff up is going to make it a little bit cooler than it was down here on the main sequence. It's burning helium into carbon in its core, and a little bit of hydrogen to helium in a very, very thin burning shell. It reaches something called the horizontal branch. With helium fusion in the core, it regains, once again, hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. It gets a brief retirement from all the fuss and bother of climbing up the red giant branch. Its radius is now about 9.5 solar radii. Its temperature is about 4,700 degrees Kelvin, and it produces about 41 solar luminosities of energy. So it's going to be a lot brighter, a lot bigger, and substantially cooler, about 1,000 degrees cooler than it is today. The problem is, is that this retirement is going to be very brief, because helium fusion is about 100 times less efficient than hydrogen fusion. That means it's going to burn through that fuel about 100 times faster. Well, previously, it took about 11 billion years to burn through its hydrogen. Well, 11 billion divided by 100 is about 100 million in round numbers. So the sun is only going to be able to maintain this renewed state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium for only 100 million years, only because it doesn't have hydrogen fusion as the dominant source. It's helium fusion. And helium fusion is just plain inefficient by comparison. So this is what the sun will look like at the end of, at, by the time it settles down to the horizontal branch. This will be a nice 100 million year period of relative stability in the solar system. There won't be a lot of changes. The sun will have shrunken, but not so much that we can't see it as a disk. Mercury, well, it's history. It's gone. And Venus, Earth, and Mars have settled into new orbits. Venus about where the Earth was, the Earth about where Mars is, and Mars just about off the track here a little bit, a little over two astronomical units away. If we were to stand upon the, the ember of the Earth and look up at the sky, the sky would actually look a lot like the sky looks from the planet Mercury. In, pretty close, actually. In fact, this is what you would see is the Earth would be airless and burned out. You would see the, the bright disk of the horizontal branch star Sun, but there would be no atmosphere, no water, and probably no life left on the very ancient Earth. So this is going to be the state when we settle down in kind of the second period of equilibrium but it's going to last a lot less time. It's only going to last about 100 million years. It's going to last because it's an all-too-brief retirement. After that 100 million years, the helium is fusing into carbon and oxygen. The carbon and oxygen, it's building up as ashes inside the core. As the ash core builds up, it begins to displace the helium inside, just like the helium, when it was an ash, displaced hydrogen in the hydrogen burning core. Eventually, we're going to reach the point where you actually begin to exhaust core helium. You haven't exhausted it yet, but you're getting pretty close. When the ash core begins to build up, it's going to start becoming heavier than the internal pressure can support. Because there's no fusion in carbon and oxygen, it's not going to be able to make enough extra heat to make up for that extra weight. And so pressure is going to, gain the, pressure is going to lose against gravity. Gravity gets the upper hand, and it begins to contract. As it begins to contract, it begins to heat up. We've been here before, but when we were here before, it was a helium core with a hydrogen burning shell. 
Now it's a collapsing carbon-oxygen core with a hydrogen and helium-burning shell, kind of making a thin little two-layer onion out of it. The remaining helium gets displaced to the outside, and I get a double-burning shell. When this happens, the sun now gets kicked out of its regained hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. Its quiet retirement in equilibrium is now ended. It loses hydrostatic equilibrium because the core is contracting. It loses thermal equilibrium because the hydrogen and helium burning shells are now making more energy than the sun can transport to the surface of its horizontal branch star configuration. It pumps that extra energy into the envelope. The energy in the envelope causes it to begin to inflate and swell up. The sun starts to swell up to about 18 solar radii. Temperature goes to about 4,550 Kelvin, and it brightens to nearly 100 solar luminosities. And it begins the second ascent of the giant branch. At this point, it begins now climbing the asymptotic giant branch. So at the end of helium core burning, the sun's going to suddenly get a little bit bigger. <coughs> at 12.344 billion years from its birth. The sun now begins a climb of the asymptotic giant branch. This is going to be a very rapid phase because the carbon-oxygen core is very heavy, it's very hot, it's going to collapse very rapidly, it's pumping a lot of energy into the hydrogen and helium-burning shells. Those shells are going to cause the sun to swell very rapidly. It's going to swell up to 180 times its current size to 0.84 astronomical units in the current solar system that would engulf both Mercury and Venus, but it's actually going to be going on slow enough that actually Venus and Earth have already moved out of the way during the earlier mass loss phase. The temperature is going to drop precipitously to 3160 Kelvin, and its luminosity is going to be 3,000 times its current luminosity. So it's going to become a red giant again, but a red giant that's about the same temperature slightly bigger and slightly more luminous than it was when it was at the tip of the red giant branch. So here's the evolution off of the horizontal branch. It's a very rapid inflation. It actually achieves a greater brightness than it did before, and it's a little bit larger. And so it becomes an asymptotic giant branch star. Now this might sound like it's going to be kind of boring. Okay, find a new fuel, burn it, get into hydrostatic equilibrium, lose equilibrium, swell back up until you ignite the next fuel, but that's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is twofold. One of them is it doesn't have enough mass to ever reach the carbon-oxygen fusion ignition temperature, which is 600 million degrees Kelvin. And it's not going to be helped by the fact that it's going to lose a lot of its envelope during the AGB phase, the asymptotic giant branch phase. If you thought the, the wind was pretty big in the uh, giant branch phase, the AGB wind is even stronger. During this period, the sun is going to be reduced from one solar mass to 0.6 solar masses. So it's going to lose 40% of its mass right from the get-go as it goes up from the top. The surviving planets are going to see the steady mass loss occurring over about 20 million years, and they're going to move out again, just out ahead of the swelling sun. Venus will head out to about 1.22 astronomical units. The Earth will end up at 1.69 astronomical units and all the other planets before. This is actually something new. It used to be thought that when the Sun swelled up into the size of an asymptotic giant branch star that it would swallow Mercury, Venus, and the Earth. But it turns out that people hadn't reckoned on mass loss before. It was only when we studied large red giants and asymptotic giant branch stars in the galaxy near us that we realized this mass loss thing is actually a powerful determinant of the history of a, of a, of a star's evolution. And one of the consequences of mass loss is the slow migration outwards of the planets 
as the sun loses central mass. It is less and less capable of hanging on to its planetary system, and it simply finds a new equilibrium. In this case, it's a new gravitational equilibrium. Now, near the tip of the asymptotic giant branch, if the mass loss was bad going up, it's going to get even worse from now. Because what's going to happen is, before the sun can ever get hot enough to ignite carbon-oxygen fusion in its core, it's going to begin to start coming apart because it's going to get itself into a very, very unstable situation. Having a hydrogen and a helium burning shell sitting on top of a collapsing carbon-oxygen core is not a stable configuration. It can't even get close to thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. Furthermore, helium fusion goes roughly like temperature to the 40th power, which means tiny, tiny changes in temperature lead to huge changes in the fusion output. And so it's like having a house thermostat that can switch on and off because the cat sneezes in its direction. You know, oh, a cat's walked in the room and the room's gotten slightly warmer, shut off the furnace. It's that kind of touchy thermostat. And that touchy thermostat, just like it would in your furnace, it starts causing trouble. In this case, it starts causing trouble in the envelope. So the asymptotic giant branch here, Venus and Earth have moved out, Mars is getting pushed off the PowerPoint slide, the sun has grown huge in size, and it begins pulsations. At the tip of the asymptotic giant branch, these pulsations become unstable and extremely rapid. And now the evolution time scale is not measured in millions of years, but in tens of thousands of years. The models that have currently been done to predict what these pulsations are going to look like vary in their predictions. But at least four major pulsation episodes will occur at roughly 100,000 intervals, according to the best models. Some models predict three, other models will predict as many as six. It's really quite difficult to do these kinds of calculations because the evolution is dynamically so rapid. But I'll stick with the four because it seems to be the best and most consistent model. During these pulsations, the helium core suddenly, the helium, sorry, not helium core, the carbon oxygen core collapsing in the middle pumps heat into the helium burning shell and the hydrogen burning shell. The helium burning shell is super touchy to changes in temperature. So a slight change in temperature and the helium core suddenly starts producing a lot of, temp of, of heat, it kind of defeats the hydrostatic thermostat that normally keeps the burning in control. And it's all of a sudden the helium shell suddenly pumps a huge amount of energy into the sun's envelope. That energy is so much, the sun simply cannot take it and transport it out to the surface fast enough to get rid of it. And so some of that heat goes into pressure. And the sun literally puffs out to an astronomical unit in size. And then when that puffs out, all of a sudden the pressure is lifted on the shell, the temperature in the shell drops, the helium fusion drops tremendously, and the bottom falls out of the hydrogen fusion and helium fusion. And the outer envelope, which is puffed way out by extra pressure, suddenly sees, oh yeah, there's no more pressure down there. And it falls back down. As it falls back down, it begins to compress the lower layers. The fusion ramps back up. And so it's like your furnace going thump, thump, thump. When you have the thermostat set too touchy, the same thing happens within the star. It's thermostats beginning to break down. The largest pulse is pulse number four. The sun will be 5,000 times its present luminosity when it goes through the, the outer bits of that big pulse. Furthermore, these pulses are fairly violent, even though they occur over 100,000 years. When they pulse outwards, part of the envelope falls back down, but another half of that, of that bit goes out into space. 
And so each successive pulsation, there's less and less stellar envelope. In fact, the very last pulse is sufficient to peel the last parts of the envelope off entirely. As each mass loss pulse occurs, because they occur over hundreds of thousands of years and therefore thousands upon thousands of orbits, they will begin to move outwards in response. So the planets get out of the way as each of the mass losses left. So here's what the sun will look like at 12.365 billion years. Here's the maximum pulsation radius. It's really quite striking how well these asymptotic giant branch stars pulsate. The very last thermal pulse is the, is the real killer. It's the one that takes off the what is left of the envelope, and it does so very rapidly in a few tens of thousands of years. The hot carbon-oxygen core is slowly but surely unveiled, and the temperature of the star of the sun on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram goes from about 40,000 to 4,000 degrees Kelvin, an asymptotic giant branch star, to suddenly the envelope being peeled away, and its surface temperature goes to 120,000 degrees Kelvin at a luminosity of about 3,500 times its current luminosity. The core traverses the HR diagram rapidly to the high temperature, high luminosity end. The ultraviolet radiation coming off of that extremely hot core begins to crash its way out into the extremely thin, puffing off envelope, and the sun begins a very brief flowering as a planetary nebula. So the sun, which was spectacular before, becomes truly spectacular. So on the HR diagram, the core takes off, the envelope separates, and what the sun looks like is something like this. It's a planetary nebula, its outer envelope lit up by its slowly collapsing core. The core is now a little over a half a solar mass, and it evolves very rapidly into a, re into a white dwarf. Mass loss is over, the planets settle into their final configuration with the Earth almost two astronomical units out, and the sun begins to fade out into the long night. A tiny white dwarf in the midst of a group of planets with the dying Earth, now a frozen place, deep in the center. These are the seven ages of the sun, an evolution that will end in approximately 12 and a half billion years of life, or as the future of the sun, approximately mm, 8 billion years in our own future. And all of it tellable by stellar models, computer programs, and everything we've learned about stellar evolution watching the stars in our galaxy. <laughs>